Welcome, everyone, to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente. And uh, I'm James Rizika. And uh, every episode on, on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, a new movie and an old movie, and we try and try and connect the dots. And this is quite exciting. This is like our um, silver anniversary, isn't it? It's, it's episode 25. Ooh. How exciting. I, I hope you brought a cake. <laughs> I didn't bring. I didn't bring a cake. Um, if that... people do want to share the cake that we didn't bring, where can they find us on the internet? Good segue. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I thought that was seamless. Basically, if you pop Two Real Cinema Club in anywhere, you'll find us. Um, we're on things like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. So, if you have friends who are interested in hearing people talk about films incessantly, then please point them in that direction. <laughs> um, also on Twitter, Two Real Cinema Club. Nope, sorry, Two Real Cine Club at Twitter.com. Instagram, Two Real Cinema Club at Instagram.com. Um, and we do have a blog, Two Real Cinema Club.com. You can always email us also at Two Real Cinema Club at Gmail.com. I do check that eventually, but I haven't um, seen any appropriate messages sent to us recently. <laughs> but I do like the There's a lot of very inappropriate spam. Those are the good ones, yeah. <laughs> uh, so this week we are talking about um, a couple of films. Um, nope, which is a 20, I did say that that's the entire film title. Nope. Um, which someone said might be not of planet earth. Ah, I don't think that's what it is, but, uh, so there's nope 2022, uh, directed, written, directed by Jordan Peele. And then also from 1984, the brother from another planet, uh, John sales film, um, that feels very much like an eighties film. It just brought back so much nostalgia for me. Uh, it's 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 um, people of color in science fiction this yeah. week, isn't it? It kind of um, is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, so you you saw Nope. Um, you were telling me at home, so you rented it at home and watched it like um, on your screen at home, yeah. Yes, we have a pretty good we have a pretty good sized screen, so that was tempting. I just uh, I actually just run my computer into my television with an HDMI cable. We have a very dated surround sound system, but um, it it works pretty well. And yeah. I could have seen this in the in the theater. It probably would have been about the same amount in terms of costs. Um, so it evens out that way. I, I think I would have done better on a bigger screen with bigger volume, but um, definitely enjoyed it. It's a great way to watch at home. So I've got a good setup. So that does work for me. So we we watched it at the local Odeon on uh, on National Cinema Day. Ooh, um, which is so. So this happened in the US. It happened in the UK. It was um, three pounds. Uh, for any ticket for any screening for the whole oh day. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, so we trot along on Saturday afternoon, and and um, joyously, the screen was pretty much packed. It was like 80% full. Oh, good. It, it was kind of 50% full of teenagers who wanted to check their phones and, and chat and, and make jokes halfway oh, through the no. film. Ooh. So, you know, good and bad things. But um, I think for a film like Nope, seeing it, in a big crowd of people, and a big crowd of young people, actually, is probably the right way to see yeah. it. There's, yeah, there's a bunch of scenes, but there's a lot of tension, and that yeah, tension is just ramped up when you have a, a you know, a big crowd to watch it with. Yeah, I, and I haven't had that lately in the theaters because most of the films I've seen are, you know, maybe twenty to thirty percent full. Mm. Um, 
And this was two middle-aged people sitting on a sofa, <laughs> very well-worn and very, you know, uh, well-known to them. Um, and one, <clears throat> not I, was on her computer a fair bit. So she took that role of the teenagers in your theater. And, uh, <laughs> and then here I am with my clipboard writing stuff down. I mean, it's not exactly the uh, cinematic experience that anyone would consider <laughs> ideal, but it happened. It was, con- I guess it was very convenient, so... Uh, now I've got, I've got to I've got to put this up. We, I, we should probably say this every episode that we are yeah. going to spoil the plot of Nope. Oh so yeah. If you if you haven't seen You're it right. yet, um, in fact, I think we've already spoiled it basically. But <laughs> just by listening to the podcast, we may have spoiled this experience <laughs> for you. But we've given I, you warning. I think it's worth going to see. So I mean, I think see it and then come back and listen to the pod. The pod will That's, still be yeah. here. Yeah. Um, so so everything hereafter. Is a fair game, I'm afraid. We're going to spoil the whole lot. So let me, I, let me. I can do a little summary for people who either haven't seen it and don't care about it being spoiled, or people who saw it so long ago that they need to be reminded of what the the story is. So um, it's a 2022 science fiction film um, set in uh, California, uh, and uh, the main character OJ, uh, he and his father Otis Senior, they run. Haywood Hollywood horses. So they are animal wranglers for the film industry. And uh, right at the top of the film, Otis Senior is killed in a freak accident by a coin falling out of the sky. Um, in which, when, what I think is actually a really great opening. There's a sort of slightly enigmatic opening which the film returns to later, um, which is mm. a, a short scene from uh, a sitcom that goes horribly wrong. But when the film's proper opens up, yeah, we get this early scene of Otis Senior being killed. And as a result, OJ, the son, and his sister, M, they're left with this business as horse wranglers. It's not really their strength. They're struggling to get the business uh, to, uh, to pay the bills. So they're kind of more or less selling it off. But while they sell off the business, um, at night, their electricity cuts off. Something is worrying their horses they're pretty sure it's a UFO. There's an alien visitor in the sky and they decide to do what any sensible person would do in 2022 with the thought of of being near aliens. They decide to film it to try and make money out of it. So they get uh, the local electronics guy, Angel, to set up surveillance cameras. They bait the UFO with this big plastic horse. Um, uh, And uh, they keep getting foiled in their attempt to get... Um, proper footage they rope in um, this uh, local uh, cowboy figure uh, Ricky who runs um, a kind of sort of fake cowboy village uh, quite close to where their ranch is Um, he's been buying horses from OJ as OJ is selling off his stock and it turns out that he also wants to try and get the attention of the UFO he is the guy who's been feeding it horses in the hope that he will be able to tame it. Um, and we learn halfway through the film that his his backstory is that he's the former child star of a sitcom that featured a, uh, a trained chimpanzee. And uh, the sitcom ended in, in violent tragedy when the chimpanzee um, attacked the cast and, and everything went haywire. And he's still trying to cope with that trauma. Um, and he's trying then, I think, to control the animal that he was unable to control when he was a child. Um, Ricky's uh, uh, punishment for trying to control the UFO, which is what it really is, which is sucking uh, sucking horses up into the sky, is that he also gets abducted by the UFO, as do the paying audience who've come to see him feed it a horse. So there are 40 people sucked up into this UFO to be digested horribly. 
Um, and uh, OJ and M are at home when the UFO returns in the middle of the night and, and spits out the indigestible contents of uh, all the people that's eaten in this rain of blood Ugh. over their house, which is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> so they finally kind of hatch this complicated plan to capture the UFO um, on film. They hire a, like a, a big Hollywood um, cinematographer. Um, they set up a whole bunch of cameras. Uh, they get these inflatable tube men and put them around the ranch because when the UFO arrives, it cuts out the electricity of any electrical devices nearby. And so that will show them when it's approaching where it is. Um, they use these hand cranked cameras, which won't fail when the electricity goes down. Um, and there's this uh, big sort of third act um, sort of uh, adventurous um, scene uh, where they put all the pieces in place you know, and they wait for the UFO to turn up and it all goes horribly wrong. A motorcyclist turns up, the photographer gets eaten. Um, it all looks like it's all going to go to hell. And eventually they manage to um, get rid of the, the UFO, which turns out to be some kind of otherworldly creature and not a vehicle at all um, by feeding at this enormous uh, helium filled cowboy balloon um, from Ricky's uh, fake cowboy village. The alien eats the balloon. It explodes. M manages to take a photograph uh, just at the last minute. You know, they've 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 captured the footage that they needed to capture and most of them have survived. And that is the note that the film ends on. Watching it on your cinema at home, this film, which is billed as a horror film, did you find it horrifying? Um, not terribly, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I'll, and I'll, there's a little caveat there. I think uh, Jordan Peele's great with all of the fake horror moments where, you know, someone's, uh, I think it's a Angel is working in the tech store and just his coworker comes up behind him and, and scares <laughs> him. The, the, those things are put everywhere. And there's a wonderful scene where, um, the neighbors from Jupiter's Claim, Richie's Ranch, um, prank um, OJ. Uh, it's OJ who's in the barn looking yeah. for all, you know, all these scary sounds are happening. The lights are going off. All, all that stuff is great. And then they appear as these little aliens. And that was a really freaky moment because we were thinking, okay, they're going to show us the monsters. And they turn out to be these kind of dwarf-like funny uh, classic uh, generic kind of aliens. And it turns out that they're the kids. Yeah, they're the kids from next door just pranking them, and that I thought that was great. So I think those moments are scarier than the than the big moments. Obviously, when this 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 monster is vomiting up blood and all these <laughs> things that it can't digest, and some of the scenes where the people are inside the intestines of the uh, monster uh, and the screaming, a lot of that is really really good. So I did like that. Um, but ultimately, it's funny because the creature itself it it sort of becomes this big unscary origami octopus parachute kind of thing and it's just not frightening um and i think i there's something about the the anatomy of the 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 being the creature that doesn't work in the sense that you you see it getting sucked up in the insides and it looks like you're in this big intestine and it seems really scary that people are sort of suffocating as they're being eaten alive but then when you see it in it's a shapeshifter kind of thing it's sort of this disc with a little hole it's almost like a sand dollar it's like an enormous sand dollar with this little hole for a mouth and it just it it kind of doesn't add up for me somehow it's like i I'm, I'm watching one creature that really does frighten me but it's on the inside and then 
the creature itself, even later in the film, on the outside, it's not that scary. It's actually quite beautiful, and then it has these these what these kind of square boxes made out of parachuting material that come out to get closer and closer to some of the victims as it eats them. Um, it's it's a hard monster to be scared of, in my opinion. Um, I, I I thought the the monster design um, was tremendously successful because it really made me feel of. Um, capture that tone of kind of cosmic horror i was open-mouthed watching the monster because you know a, a ufo with little green men inside it you know yeah. that i can comprehend and understand but there yeah. was something simply incomprehensible yeah it felt you know it clearly like like it was supposed to be trans-dimensional or somehow breaking the laws of physics yeah you know, how, how could this creature fly and then sort of transform and flip itself inside out yeah um the, the way that it starts out it looks you know it looks like a it disguises itself as a cloud and then it looks like an eye or a camera. Yep. Um, and then when it kind of opens itself up, it looks, um, looks like an old sort of Victorian box camera or something like this, with this yeah. kind of this sort of flicking shutter movement yeah. um, from this central mechanism inside it. And it looks like, you know, it's, is it a machine? Is it just sort of surrounded itself with fluttering paper? Yeah. Is this actually the creature itself? Yeah. Are we seeing, I mean, it really feels that little that little unnaturally square square inside the creature feels like a doorway into somewhere else. Yeah, it just feels utterly unknowable. It feels completely incomprehensible. Yeah, which is you know, which is what cosmic horror is supposed to be. I so I thought from that point of view, you know, having seen so many CGI monsters with tentacles in films over the last fifteen years. Yeah, um, for somebody to come up with a monster design which is you know, just truly unique and incomprehensible is a proper achievement actually so i i i love the monster i did find it sort of uh chilling yeah maybe frightening is not the word but yeah. um kind of chilling yeah i think that makes sense um but uh, like otis's or oj's um reactions are always so calm um he comes <laughs> across as this this i don't know this uh terrible mistake in screenwriting which is like a passive protagonist you know we always talk about oh we've got to be active got to be doing stuff um and he is just so chill um so relaxed nonplussed um calm and 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 never gets too worked up about um uh, death or the monster even when he's on the verge of being swallowed by it um so it's I, i like in some ways i really liked it it was refreshing um, it was almost like um, telling people not to run around if there's a bee on them. You know, you got to stay calm, <laughs> calm, calm, calm. Um, and he does that. Um, but I don't know that that's, you know, it doesn't make him a super strong or active protagonist. They, they're definitely using their wits when they put together this plan uh, to um, to capture, at least film it, right? They're not necessarily out to destroy it in the early going yeah, they just um, want to cap- yeah, capture an image. And the and the final destruction is hilarious. I love the big balloon cowboy going up, and I guess it's got helium in it, so it blows up inside the monster. But I don't think that was ever an intention. That's sort of Emerald sort of riffing at the at the last moment. She's escaped from their ranch onto uh, the Jupiter's um, the Jupiter's claim ranch, and she comes up with that idea, and it works perfectly. Um, but he also says something. He says, "Don't look it in the eyes," and I got kind of confused by this because. He's saying that that's the message. You, you, the thing's not going to eat you if you don't look it in the eyes. But it seems like it swallows everything kind of um, indiscriminately at, at the same time. And I know you, you mentioned the thing about the, that Ricky was feeding it horses. And I don't that was never uh, explicit to me. There's that one show that he's trying to put on to reveal the monster. Um, 
And he's got a horse there, I guess, ready to be eaten. But even a horse wouldn't look it in the eyes, I don't think, right? So, I mean, I don't know if that's what yeah, that... I wonder. Yeah, I don't know. It's that a, a good rule. Point. You know, there's a rule. If that's the rule, then it has to be kind of consistent. So it probably wouldn't eat a horse if the horse didn't look it in the eyes. And there, there is this... There are a couple moments where you have horses looking into mirrors and, and uh, OJ learning some things. But it's not a rule that's really consistent. So, I mean, it, like all, all the nickels and dimes and farm equipment that it's swallowing up whole, you know, none of those things are looking it in the eyes. It seems just to sort of vacuum stuff up and then spit mm. things out. <laughs> like it's after the fact, it, it's thinking, oh, did that thing look me in the eyes? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat it. If it didn't look <laughs> me in the eyes, I mean, I'm, I'm going to spit it out or whatever. I don't know. So there's some uh, rules that just don't really um, apply consistently throughout the, mm, the film. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask, I'm interested to know what your answer to this will be. Were you aware of Jordan Peele before Get Out? No. I know he has a lot of writing credits and a lot of he a lot of experience before that, but I think Get Out was the first, I think more television before. And Get Out kind of came out. I think it, yeah. it was, it was um, advertised even in the UK as being you know, a film from Jordan Peele, yeah. as if... I was supposed to know who Jordan yeah. Peele was. I, I think um, my understanding is that he's done, yeah, kind of like sitcom or sketch Yeah, great comedy. sketch stuff, yep. In the US. And I don't think any of that has really made it over to the UK. Oh, okay. Um, but um, i tell you what I do think about Jordan Peele. So I've only seen Get Out. I haven't seen Us. I've seen this now. Yep. But I, I actually think he's got a lot going for him as a screenwriter because he really, really knows how to milk, how to work a theme. Because I feel like um, this this film is so um, so like heavy and insistent on its themes. You know, n never a moment goes by without him, you know, stamping those themes again and again. The theme of is is kind of gaze, isn't it? That um, it's about you know some surveillance. Um, the, the the mere fact that the characters react to this threat of an alien by wanting to film it, mm. wanting to capture it, but, you know, wanting to look at it. That's, that's the modern reaction to everything. Um, you know, this whole idea of, of, you know, looking away in the same way that if you are a black man, I mean, this is what this made me think of. Um, then and, you know, the police come by, the sensible action is just, you know, look at the floor, look over there, don't make eye contact because, you know, they're going to pull you over. Um, the way that he kind of focuses on Daniel Kaluuya's eyes, the way that he's even kind of lit some of those scenes, so really you, you almost can't see anything except his eyes. Um, and like the, the sort of the camera-like form of of the monster, the guy who turns up on the motorcycle, who's got that helmet, which yeah. looks also just like the monster. It's got this single gaping yeah, Cyclops. eye. Cyclops, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, even the 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 scene. Um, from Ricky's sitcom, which I was struggling to connect to the rest of the film yeah. for most of the movie. So we have this kind of quite long um, sort of flashback to Ricky as a child watching terrified underneath a tablecloth as the chimp in his sitcom you know, beats up his the other cast members. And it's a you know, very violent, bloody, terrifying scene. Yeah. And then you know, just at the end, you know, the chimp spots him under the tablecloth, but doesn't attack him. And I think the reason it doesn't attack him is because when he's partly hidden by the tablecloth, it interrupts his gaze. So they kind of can't make eye contact. And it's the eye contact that frightens the chimp. Um, the way that I think it's just kind of I think very skillful, the way that he's managed to work you know, this theme into pretty much every segment of the film and to kind of work it and dig it in and make it um, absolutely part of the fabric of every scene. Um, 
So I think from that point of view, you know, tremendous thematic consistency. It did leave me thinking slightly, you know, with all that heavy working of the theme, what is the film actually about? Yeah. It can't really just be a film about looking. And I was trying to figure out, is it just that sometimes we fear what we can see more than we fear what we cannot see? Or is he trying to suggest that um, to capture something on film is to tame it? Uh, Holst, the photographer, whenever we see him at home when he answers phone calls, he's editing these films of, of real wild animals in mortal, in mortal combat. Um, and there's something about taming nature by capturing its image. I think that's kind of what the film is about, but I'm not really sure what it's saying about that notion, whether it's saying it's folly or not. I was hoping you'd tell me, because um, <laughs> in my notes right here, it says, what the hell is it really about? So I, I, I have to admit, I think a lot of the gay stuff escaped me. Um, so I, I don't know that it's about that. That's a, it's a, it's a good hypothesis, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really struggled with this film a lot, in, in part because the, the thing that I thought was the best was the Gordy's Home stuff. So Gordy's Home was the sitcom Mm. Um, that Ricky was in, and I think it gets maybe three or four beats in the whole film. It opens with it, and this is why the film is quite confusing to me. It opens with this, which is the best stuff in the film. It is gory, it's bloody, it's deadly. Um, he comes back to it a couple times when it's sort of it ends up being sort of flax flashbacks or backstory for someone who ends up being a, a minor character. It's definitely not yeah. one who leads. Yeah. Um, but Jordan Peele spends three or four significant beats on it. And I think you've attached it pretty well is that because he can't look him in the eye, um, the chimpanzee doesn't, um, doesn't kill him because he kills basically the rest of the cast and clears yeah. the audience out of there. Um, so that's the connection to the story, but otherwise it doesn't really support the main story that well. And for me, that was a letdown, but just because I thought that was the most striking stuff in the film those three or four moments so it adds up to about what five minutes tops in a two hour and 11 minute film something like that so i mean all that george gordy's home stuff you could cut from the film and it would you know you, nobody would notice no no you wouldn't notice a thing yeah, it and it's no interesting difference to get to the story you and you get more backstory on ricky than you do on uh, oj yeah. on emerald i mean it's 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 a real you're kind of wrong footing the audience quite a bit and as a result you know i'm looking I spent so much time trying to connect that to the rest of the film that, yeah, I, I, you know, the gay stuff is there, but it's almost in every movie and in everything in our lives these days because we're so visual to begin with. You can't not be on uh, you know, camera phones these days or surveillance <laughs> cameras, right? So, I mean, it's, that's yeah, kind of like built into our DNA at this point. Um, just, yeah. the, the other connecting strand is that uh, the, the chimpanzee, um, Gordy, is frightened by um, a balloon, isn't he? So, like, his, his, one of the characters in the show opens this this um, box and it's full of helium balloons oh, which yeah. float up into the sky and burst, and that's what panics him and makes him um, go into kind of sort of panic mode and, and and kill the other cast members. Yeah. So I guess you know having the balloon come back at the end of the movie and and having that kind of same beat but writ massive in the sky, I suppose that kind of ties those two things mm -hmm. together. But it's yeah, it, it feels. Um, almost like an elaborate gag rather than some kind of thematic link. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think it's that strong a link anyway. I mean, I think you've done some great work there to put together uh, the themes and you've noticed all that, that sort of, uh, that gazing. But I still struggle with the film because I just, it, 
it wasn't that scary per se. So, you know, we, I put it down as a horror film, not super scary. Um, and yeah, I don't think it's that clear on what it wants to be about. And I, you know, I may have missed the point entirely. Um, but there, there were some things I loved about. I mean, yeah. I really loved the story yeah. world stuff. I love this old Hollywood kind of stuff, and the fact that you know they these horse trainers are thinking about stealing some ideas from uh, another like minor theme park nearby, and they're doing business with each other. And I liked a lot of that. Um, but I was yeah, I was I was kind of just in no 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 nowheresville somehow on this film. I just didn't know where the hell I was supposed to be, <laughs> what I was supposed to be paying attention to, and. It's and it's all done very, uh, 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 very competently. It's a well-made film, certainly. A huge budget, obviously. I mean, or a huge, uh, you know, crew and cast. It's just uh, enormous in that way. If you stay stick around and watch the credits, um, it goes on and on. So there's a lot of, you know, there'll be a lot of um, CGI going on here, but a lot of money put into it. Um, I think I guess for a contemporary horror film, it's quite refreshing that it leans much more on this kind of sense of dread for scares than it does on just jump scares. Yeah. There are kind of very few uh, moments where somebody suddenly kind of jumps out on screen, mm -hmm. but it's, he's quite good. I think at, at, at stringing out this, this kind of gradual gutsy fear that builds and builds. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of good at that. And there's um, one other thing I was going to say, yeah. which I admired about his writing is just the way that the opening works, not the opening with Gordy's home, but the kind of the opening proper where you see OJ and his dad, Otis, yeah. um, just you know, starting their day on the ranch. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, OJ is kind of feeding the horses and then kind of starts them on this kind of little walk, it, walk around machine to give them a bit of exercise. And Otis makes a few kind of slightly oblique comments and then, and then kind of Otis is, is killed by this foiling, falling um, coin. And I, I can think of many films where that scene would feature um, a bit of dialogue between the two characters where Otis was saying, well, you know, son, you know, I've run this ranch for 50 years using these horses for Hollywood movies. And I've done all the great movies, but <laughs> the, these, these days are coming to an end and you're going to have to take over this farm. Am yeah. I dad? Yeah, you sure are. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's kind of there's no scene like that. Instead, it's you know, it's very oblique. Um, it feels very kind of slice of life. It's you know, it shows some real proper confidence and control. And I think those kinds of scenes were really good. In the same way that I I found quite a bit of the dialogue in the film difficult to hear. Yes, and I don't think it mattered because um, the story comes across you know, without you really being able to hear this kind of the, the mumbled dialogue. Yeah, you hear the bits that you really have to hear. But the rest of it, you can easily fill in for yourself. Yeah, so I think, uh, yeah. from the point of view of writing, I haven't seen the script, but from the point of view of the writing that made its way onto the screen, I think this is a you know, this is a really pretty terrifically written film for twenty twenty two. Yeah, definitely a sign of a good film if you don't need to hear the dialogue to understand it and to follow it pretty well. Yeah, and I agree yeah. with you. I think that there was something about the sound; it just didn't look like it was re-recorded particularly well or mixed particularly well and you had some mumbling actors too i think um like the grizzled dp the director of photography who comes in to help them out you know i didn't understand anything he said and i think he was that was that was characterization is what i assumed you know like this is a guy who's just mumbling mumbling he's watching one animal eat another one on television all day long and then he finally decides to get involved to help them out um so I was, i'm thinking that was probably characterization to a certain extent 
But uh, yeah. throughout all of his scenes, I was it's Michael Wincott, isn't it? That plays that character, and throughout all yeah. of his scenes, I was thinking, just clear your throat, clear your throat, cough, <laughs> cough, come on, <laughs> just just cough it up. Yeah, yeah. Oh god, it was pretty funny. And there and there there are some funny moments. I think that's kind of a, a par for the course with a Peel film is that you're going to have some funny moments at kind of almost uncomfortably uh, gory times or, or scary times you start laughing. Um, but the real gore, again, the real gore is really in the sitcom uh, replays. It's not, uh, other yeah. than seeing like these these rainfalls of blood and debris from the creature, um, you know, you're not seeing people get de- decapitated or stabbed or, or beat up. Um, it's really gory only in the sitcom. And even that is mostly off screen, but really well um, implied, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's, it gets a 15 certificate in the UK. Okay. So, you know, there is a, and, and uh, my children were asking me about it and I was kind of saying, you know what, I think this film is probably too scary for you, although you don't see a great deal of very explicit no. No. gore. But, yeah, but the level of violence that is implied or that happens just off screen yeah. is pretty extreme. It, it's it is very, very violent. I find it funny that I said, um, I think the last podcast we were talking about too much violence. I was saying, oh, God, everyone's getting their necks snapped or they're being impaled by this or that. And then in this film, I thought, boy, that was good blood. I want more of that. I want more of Gordy's home. So, hypocrite. There's one last thing I will kind of just kind of ask you about. So in the Gordy's home section, yeah. the camera and the kind of the actors kind of focus on this sort of strange magical moment that um, one of the characters is being beaten up their shoe has been left so it's been resting yeah. kind of like heel down pointing yep. straight up at the sky and like that's the thing that ricky the boy really focuses on this weird yes like sort of magical moment like a coin that's been tossed and has landed on its edge yeah and i was trying to figure out you know is that just like like a weird tiny little bit of detail uh, or is there something um you know deeper or something that that is referencing which i don't get because you know i saw that and i thought that was kind of interesting and magical and strange and you know quite human to focus on this sort of bizarre detail in amongst you know this bloody panic yeah but i wonder whether there was something there that you know that would be obvious to other people in the audience that i just didn't get yeah i i think the way i read it was it's a question of like what is real um, when you're putting together a sitcom, there's nothing real. That looked like one of these totally artificial sitcoms. Um, so there's nothing real. And then when this chimpanzee goes nuts and starts killing people, things get real really fast. Um, so I think that sort of connects to the other story in the sense, like, are these creatures real or is this something that's completely unreal? Um, and he, Peel gives you that shoe. Maybe you remember this when Ricky shows them. He's got this sort of closet of memorabilia of all these right, gorgeous yeah. things. And that shoe is on the wall um, hung like a piece of art, and it 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 kind of makes sense there because you you don't know that it's standing up on end uh, until later on. Uh, it makes sense that a piece of art is hanging hanging like that. So of course it's going to stand up on end. But when you see it in the the sort of recreation of the the sitcom, it's just sitting there in the middle of the rug on the floor, um, unnaturally standing up on end. So it comes back. He does sort of set it up a little bit, and then it comes back. To show you, but it it is interesting. It's real, real detail, and for me, it was just like you know, this, something's not right. There's something wrong. There's something unreal about this whole moment, and I think that kind of connects to the story. Like, why is this monster parked over our little valley, trying to eat everything around here? And so I was looking. You know, is there a karma story? Did Ricky do something, and that's why he's huh. being eaten up, and and why that whole area is being terrorized by the by the creature? But I could, I had a hard time putting it all together. I really did. Gosh, it's a. Do you think maybe the shoe is a clue that this the film 
it kind of doesn't quite happen in the real world. Well, there's something just a little bit sort of dreamlike and a little bit off kilter and a little bit just a little bit off center about it. That's that's very interesting. Yeah. That passed me by. Mm. Uh, good picture, I think. So refreshing to be surprised by a big budget horror film. Um, wasn't in I think I was aware that there was a bit of spaciness going on or maybe something to do with aliens, but yeah. I largely managed to avoid spoilers, mm. unlike listeners of this pod. And I, um, <laughs> I was, I was, um, yeah, pleasantly surprised. It didn't turn out the way that I was expecting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, the trailers managed to give away very little. Um, so yeah, um, 68 million bucks of interesting surprise. Ooh, yeah. Worth, worth going to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, let's have a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about um, another um, science fiction film, um, Brother from Another Planet. We'll be back in a minute. So, Andres, tell me what. Uh, what do you think is really missing um, from the world of film and television? What do we really need? Heroes like John Wayne, <laughs> Cary Grant. No, that's definitely not what we need. What we really need is a brand new internet film and television streaming service mm. because there just aren't nearly enough of them. <laughs> So I'm pleased to say after many months of negotiation, uh, we will be launching our own television streaming service in the autumn. Really exciting. It's going to be called Two Real Cinema Club Plus. Um, it's going to be full of the content that you and your family can't wait to watch. We're going to have uh, original programming, um, including uh, Better Call Jeff, which is uh, a bit like <laughs> Better Call Saul. But it's, it's mostly me on the phone to my friend Jeff. We'll have... Um, uh, retro science fiction uh, series Unusual Things. Um, there's a, a very exciting uh, original original show, uh, which is a combination of the excitement of uh, Game of Thrones and the intrigue of House of Cards. Uh, we're calling it Game of Cards, um, and it's and it's going to be mostly you and me playing a game of cards. But but not just uh, not just original um, shows. They're going to be uh, documentaries like. Photos of my cat, which is uh, an hour of me showing you photos of my cat, and uh, and there's going to be uh, uh, feature length films as well, like uh, like the public domain introduction to Windows ninety five VHS tape <laughs> two. Uh, so all sorts of content uh, that you won't be able to see anywhere else apart from YouTube, and uh, will all be presented to you in a unique interface, um, which will show you random content that you don't want to watch. Or it will recommend you things that you've already watched and don't want to see again. Um, but not only are we launching a, a television streaming service that will have basically nothing that you want to watch, but we're using that as a feature, not a bug. The value of having a streaming service for only $15 a month yeah. that shows Ooh. you nothing that you want to watch is that you won't waste hours of every evening trying to figure out what you're going to watch that evening and arguing with other family members about what you're going to watch because there's nothing to watch. It's good. That's and good. our guarantee to our subscribers, if you do find something that you like, we promise that we will take it off the service without warning in about 48 hours. So that's uh, TRCC plus 15 bucks a month coming this autumn. Get on it. I like it. 
hey, but but does that mean that my plans for TRCC minus are just <laughs> for not? <laughs> or could oh, we, that we could take the the content from TRCC plus that doesn't work. We could put it on my 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 service TRCC minus. Yeah. <laughs> Annette, if you subscribe twice, you could get both services, and we'll just call it zero. <laughs> TRCC even. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I'm looking forward to that. That's streaming this fall, you say? This fall. $15. That's great. Welcome back, everyone. Our second feature that we're going to discuss today is The Brother from Another Planet which I, for years, thought was just called Brother from Another Planet, but it is ah. The Brother, huh? It's got that uh, definite article at the beginning. Um, written directed by John Sayles, who's sort of a godfather of the American independent film movement, um, and a lot of his regulars are in the film, or at least a couple of them are. Um, I also had the year wrong. It was 1984. I thought this was a 90s film, so I was way oh, off wow. base going into this um, viewing. Um Made for about three hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is actually, boy, that's a lot of money back then in my mind. And uh, I and guess so. For an inter- I don't know. It, it, I felt that it looked quite studenty. I felt like yeah. Um, that, that. Yeah, three hundred fifty thousand dollars kind of looked sort of fairly fair. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a yeah. It, yeah, it did. It does not have the production values of a three hundred fifty thousand dollar film. Boy, of that time or of now. I mean, now you could make a pretty good film for that money. I think just because the the gear is so good. Um, but he's definitely working on film in the mid-'80s. Uh, takes place in New York City, and it's all from the perspective of a, a black alien or an alien who comes to Earth as a black man. Um, the opening, it jumps right in. There's some, like, shaky camera and screaming, the, similar to um, Nope, where the screaming is really effective, actually. You hear all these voices. Um, but then you have yeah. these, these steel drums, which kind of are odd. Steel drum solo bits. Um, all of this kind of signifies an alien crash. Um, it's really quite low budget. You don't see a ship or anything like that. It's everything's just kind of implied. Um, and frighteningly, he lands without a lower leg, as like from the knee yes. down, his right leg is just bleeding, and uh, he does not look in like in good shape. Uh, he's hobbling around quite a bit. He, for some reason, he either lands on Ellis Island, which is a, a major port of immigration in New York City, or he gets there somehow. Um, and I think the, the significance is that he sort of lands uh, as an immigrant um, and you hear these sort of uh, screams of babble in there, just all these different languages. It's all like the ghosts of all the immigrants who've come through Ellis Island are, are with him. And it's actually, that's a pretty effective uh, use of audio, I thought. Is it still um, a port of immigration? In New York, Ellis Island. It's not. It's a museum, I believe. Ah, right. um, it's not far from the, the island that houses the Statue of Liberty. Okay. Um, so I think it's a museum of immigration now. Um, most of the ports now are really um, the airport terminals and oh, shipping right, terminals. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, of course. And streamlined that way. Um, I, f- I forgot about the invention of the airplane there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like uh, almost 100 years now, something like that. <laughs> the commercial ones anyway. Um, this is, at times, it's sort of an absurd comedy, but um, a lot of sales pieces are really... Uh, Moral plays, I guess. I think of him that way. He's a very, uh, like, an activist, uh, leftist filmmaker, and I think uh, a lot of his values come out in his films. Uh, mm. And then he usually throws in some comedy to to lighten it up a little bit. Um, the alien 
or the brother. I guess we should call him the brother. I keep calling him the alien, but he's really the brother from another planet. He sort of regrows the foot overnight, um, but it has three or four toes and a talon or talons yeah. on them. Yeah, so he's obviously um, uh, identified by his um, this physical feature. Um, he finds some shoes pretty early on to hide this. Um, but he's really got he stands out as it is. Um, and the story is really about him trying to assimilate um, into the city. Um, he has trouble with the law immediately. He has to seal food. He needs money. Um, he gets a little bit freaked out by Jesus Christ when he walks into a church, which I thought was kind of uh, interesting <laughs> because he has these healing powers. Um, there's not much detail, but if yeah. he puts his hand to anything, he can sort of produce sound and light, and usually he's fixing a, a child's wound or a television. He gets a job fixing old arcade games, uh, and later on he uses powers to steal a car. So he, he definitely has powers that we might think of as being alien. Um, he seems to have the, the powers of E.T., basically, doesn't he? He sort of does, he has yeah. Like, he has this kind of glowing hand, yeah, which, which has multiple uses. Yeah. And E.T.'s, what, two years before this, maybe? 81 or 82 is E.T.? So, you know, that was the hot thing, was to have healing powers with light. Um, my understanding, actually, is that John Sales wrote, like, the original treatment that became E.T. Oh, that I did not know. That would be yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think oh, so, yeah, interestingly. Yeah, he's definitely, um, I think he's been a script doctor a little bit. He's uh, known for his writing, but started making films probably late 70s, I think. I was looking at his yeah, IMDb. something like that. The Return of the Secaucus 7, I think, is his first big-ish film, probably first feature, and that's maybe 77 or 78, I think. It might be, right, okay. might be 1980, somewhere around there. Um, so he's the protagonist. It's his story. It's the brother's story, but um, he is being chased by some folks who look like Earthlings, but I don't know that they are. They're sort of precursors to the men in black. They literally wear black. Mm, yeah. And in thinking about it and then reading about it later, I guess they're bounty hunters maybe from his planet, but they want to come back and get the brother and take him away. Um, and they're kind of goofy, but they seem very uh, dangerous. And they are played by John Sayles, the director, and David Strathairn, who's been in a bunch of his films and has, uh, has gone on to be a pretty big actor. Yeah. Um, and people, you know, they're people in... This is a very multicultural film. I think it's intentionally very inclusive, um, and so John Sayles gives everyone certain, certain manners of dress or really different speech patterns. And he often gives people long monologues that characterize them really well. So he's, um, there are minor characters who get, um, some good screen time in this and it's sort of exploring, I think the idea is you're exploring New York city as this, this land of so many different people and so many different cultures. Um, and that comes through in, um, a lot of the dialogue, um, uh, but the the alien is, or the brother, he has no idea what you know, this culture is about. He sees a dog tied up outside a grocery store, and he unties <laughs> it and frees it, so he doesn't realize that you leave your dog tied up so that it doesn't run into traffic. Um, or he buys a record album at one point because he's attracted to the woman on the packaging, and he sort of throws away the the recording. <laughs> That's not of interest to him. The uh, packaging and then the liner notes and the and the picture are the important thing. So. Um, he's, uh, it's, he's well characterized. He does not speak a word in this film played by, is it Joe Morton? Joe Morton, yeah. Joe Morton plays it beautifully. So it's a very expressionistic kind of thing where he really just has to use gestures and movements to communicate. 
Uh, he's not allowed to speak English, but he is allowed to understand it, which is kind of strange. So even though he's there for a <laughs> yeah. while, he never even says hello. You'd think he might pick up that. Um, so it's this, sort of this convenient he, does, he doesn't have vocal cords, something like that. He's so actually, that, it's just not possible for him to, yeah, to vocalize. I, it's not explained, um, but he. it is very convenient, I think, for John Sayles, because that way he doesn't have to have this creature um, uh, speak at all. Um, and it's shot, this film's kind of shot like a play in many ways. There's very little camera movement. So you very often have long shots with dialogue sections. And, um, but at the, at the same time, it's very visual because your protagonist is not speaking at all. So it has some interesting elements of both, um, I think, cinema and theater. Um, and it's, there's a lot of talking. It is definitely a talkie. I think talkies are generally kind of cheaper to do than these big epic kind of yeah. uh, shots. I mean, you, there's more dialogue, I think, for a reason. I think he's still working on um, minimal resources here. Um, he By the end of Act One, he's sort of become a community, uh, part of a community of these sort of barflies bar in Harlem. Um, so there are these, uh, these four black men. There's the bartender and a couple of uh, grizzled old uh, drinkers um, who sort of take him in. Even though he can't talk, they sort of start to protect him, and they care for him. They find out, you know, give him, get him a place to live, and even get him into a job. So um, he's definitely a fish out of water. That's what the kind of the whole um, idea of this film. Um, All right. Sales and Straithern, actually, the, so the men in back, they come. They're looking for him. They enter the bar. They put some pressure uh, on the alien, and they get the 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 barflies, the, the men in there, kind of worked up a little bit. But the the funny thing about them is dangerous characters or antagonists is they're not very menacing, and they kind of disappear for 10 and 20 minutes, 30 minutes at a time. <laughs> so they don't have a lot of scenes, and they're not that dangerous, and that makes the makes the tension pretty light because you, you, you get the feeling they're not going to ever get get at him or do him any harm. Um, but they are just kind of creepy because they're very, very weird characters and, and they, they boy around the comic all the time. So, um, let's see. So I, I think, you know, they're, de they're definitely commentaries on, on race and what it's like to be uh, black in America. And this is, you know, 40 years ago. So it's sad that we're still struggling with some of these things, but yeah. um, that's definitely on his mind. It's, and it's not, I don't think it's just race. I think he's also talking about, um, different cultures and people coming from different places and um, the immigrant experience in general. Um, right about the middle, there's this odd love scene where he falls for this singer. Her image is all over the city, and she's in record stores, and that's the record that he buys. But she, she's really playing in this one very small, sad nightclub. So she's billed <laughs> as a superstar, but it's really <laughs> quite a basic uh, club where she's playing. And he has very good access to her. So they actually... Um, he befriends her. Um, he befriends a lot of people, even though he never says anything. Um, there's this one uh, pair of guys from Indiana who get lost in Harlem, um, and they, they just fall in love with him. They just sit there at the bar where, where the brother hangs out with uh, his friends in the bar. Um, and they say, hey, if people would sit down and talk and communicate, you know, there wouldn't be any problems in the world. Um, and he's never said a word to these guys, but he's brought, you know, he's bringing people together somehow. Um, and then there's a strange turn where he has this bizarre drug experience. It's heroin, I believe. And, and this chap who had robbed him earlier and this young boy, um, sort of resurfaced and the young boys, uh, had a heroin overdose, but the brother picks up the needle. I think it's yeah. the same needle that he, the kid used when he overdosed and died. The brother basically goes on a heroin trip and kind of passes out, but this sort of Jamaican messiah, 
Um, he just keeps talking nonstop about you know, the condition of humans in New York City. It's sort of this street poetry. Um, and he sort of saves the brother as he's going on and on about the human condition. Uh, they smoke some weed to recover. Um, and then all of a sudden the brother normalizes. He's in a museum with this young boy he's living with. It, it, the film gets a little bit random um, as a collection of scenes, but I guess it's showing his um, assimilation into the whole uh, city. Um, but the agents sort of reappear, and um, uh, they're out. They, they, they're chasing him down at the bar um, and looking for him, and apparently taking him back to his planet or whatnot. Um, but again, Sales gives everyone some chance to offer some perspective. So the the brother at one time sits down next to a police officer, and he just the police yeah. officer gives him his opinion on on life and the world, and. Uh, there's also there's a scene in an office where a disaffected old, older black woman, she gets her chance to talk about the system and how it's cheating her, and then the white guys from Indiana. So you're always getting these other perspectives. So it's interesting because the just by moving through the world, the brother sort of brings out uh, attitudes or opinions from other people, and they all sales gives them a chance to um, to air their opinions. And I, I think one of the amazing things about this sales film is that. He, he nails the dialogue. I mean, he's writing for people from all sorts of different cultures, and there's some long passages where they're just talking and talking, but they are, it's very well written, and the stuff is very well delivered. So um, it is impressive. I don't want to, I generally don't want to talk too much about talking in films, um, but it's pretty well done in this film. Um, yeah. Um, sort of a late surprise is the graffiti. I don't know if you caught this, but he, there's this graffiti that the brother can sort of understand, and he's so desperate to communicate people with the graffiti that he cuts his own hand and writes responses to the graffiti in blood. Um, it's a really nice touch. It's a little undeveloped. It does sort of come back at the end and make some sense. But um, um, yeah, I was mystified when that happened. In fact, I think yeah. I've only really understood the meaning of that scene just now when you have explained okay. it. And I've suddenly realized, oh, yeah, now I get it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It's yeah, a, that it, kind of went right over my head. Yeah, so the, I think, it, you know, I, it, as soon as I saw it, I thought, okay, he's coming. It's E.T. phone home, isn't it? He's um, <laughs> he's seeing this graffiti. He can understand it. He wants to contact the people. So he starts writing back in his blood, which is a little gross. But um, he also is uh, on, he wants to hunt down the man who um, stole from him and whose buddy died on the overdose. And he uses, this is crazy, he uses his removable eyeball. So the brother has this eyeball that he can use sort of as a camera. So he plants it in an outdoor pot of a, a flower pot. And it's surveilling this house so that he can uh, find out what's going on. And it allows him to sort of follow um, the money, I guess. Uh, he's trying to figure out who's selling drugs to whom and how it's all happening. And uh, so he starts following this one of the guys who hangs out in the bar, Prescott, who's seemingly involved in the drug trade somehow. Um, or he can, he certainly um, had contact with the young guy who was um, stealing and then using the drugs. Um, it looked a lot like cocaine ultimately when you see it, but I think they were calling it heroin. I don't, I don't want to go too yeah. much into that. I mean, that's, um, that's probably a small detail, but um, he's able to track um, the, the sort of the business down to this real estate mogul. He gets into this building and the, the re real estate guy is uh, at the top of the skyscraper at his desk and um, the brother walks in and uh, he sort of just, he takes the eyeball <laughs> yes. and show, he puts it up to the real, I guess the real estate mogul is allowed, to, he can see what was on the camera eyeball yeah. uh, by looking at it and he sees his wrongdoing because he sees the boy overdose on the drugs and it, 
you know, the brother doesn't beat him up or anything like that. He just shows him what he's doing and what what havoc uh, and what harm he's doing to his community. And I guess the tycoon's kind of scared straight a little bit, perhaps. Well, um, I, I, but then after that, he, um, the brother takes the bag of white powder. Yeah, and and like it, it um, we get a POV shot of him pushing the 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 bag of like this plastic bag of white powder like over the camera lens. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was thinking, is he is he forcing the guy to overdose? I guess that's he, what. Yeah. Is he asphyxiating him with the bag? Or I didn't quite understand that's what right. happened there. I I got the impression that the guy who was the drug kingpin came to a sticky end in that scene, oh, even though it wasn't explicitly proven. Like a forced overdose. Yeah, that's possible. I, yeah, I, I do I, I spot, That's what I interpreted it as. Oh, okay. So he does. So it's, it seems to be like he wants to avenge this death, and he's you know yeah. sort of going all over the city to try and do it, and he does manage to do it. So that would that would make sense. Yeah. So he's forced the the tycoon to take his own drugs and die by his own medicine. I guess. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the men in black are tracking him down. They go to the bar in Harlem. There's this fight with all the barflies there, and the brother escapes. And if you know New York City geography, this scene doesn't make a lot of sense because he, he gets downtown <laughs> and deals with the real estate mogul after that and then he gets back up to the bar in no time. So it's like <laughs> I want to be on his subway cars when I'm in New York City because that's not well, how In real works. life, that's like an hour and a half oh journey my God, or something. Easily, each way. And you know, <laughs> not only does he make the trip, but uh, the guys who are chasing him also get on some fast trains too. So uh, well done for them. Um, but the men in black sort of eventually track uh, the brother down in the night. Um, he starts to see the graffiti. And so the graffiti comes back and he's able to lead them in a certain direction where there are other um, brothers and sisters. So they're all black and, again, probably aliens, but I don't know if they're black aliens or they're just in, um, uh, in, in their alien form takes on black bodies. I'm not really sure what happened there, but um, they are there. It's not a formidable group on numbers or muscle. There's some women, uh, there's some men, it's maybe 20 people, but the men in black who had just beaten the crap out of everybody in the bar and seemed like unbeatable, they decided to just not fight. It's very convenient. Mm. They, they'd check out. I couldn't tell if they were beaming up to their planet or if there was some sort of joint suicide, but these guys who didn't, uh, you know, bash an, uh, what is it, bat, bat an eye at, at beating up all these other guys and doing very well in the bar fight, they they kind of walk away from confrontation here. It's not terribly clear, but they I think they do like a fist bump or they put their hands together in such a way and then they beam out. Yeah. Um, and then the closing image, I, I really need your explanation on this. Uh, the brother takes the A train, so he's on the subway after he's, you know, he's, he always points up as if I'm going to outer space and then one of the other uh, brothers points down and that means subway i guess <laughs> so he ends up he arrives at a harlem school i think maybe it was a prison it was really odd but he's on the fence uh, outside a building with a big lot and on the on the wall of the building it says harlem plays the best ball in the country um, which i think is basketball and then brother turns and smiles directly at the camera and that's kind of where it ends it's a little bit ambiguous it looks like he's going to stay on the planet I couldn't tell why he was going to that place um, well, in Harlem. My aunt, I thought um, after he sleeps with the nightclub singer. Yeah. Um, like after that scene and like, you know, he puts his clothes back on and she says, oh, you, you were wild in bed, honey, and <laughs> see you around. Yeah. And um, while he is on his way to you know the next story beat, which is um, he spots the drug dealers, um, he passes a couple of guys playing basketball. Okay. And you know, one of his 
you know, alien superpowers that he's that he's incredibly good at basketball. Ah, there you go. And he like he scores a hoop from you know thirty yards out yes. or something like that. Um, and so I was guessing that at the end of the movie we're supposed to think, ah, oh, he's going to go and become a professional basketball player, and that's there how he's go. going to settle in, in on on the earth. Okay. I think that's what that means. It's like this little kind of just a little gag at the end. Oh, and then he becomes a basketball player. Okay. There you go. That's why I think it is. He does um, smile. Again, I don't think I quite realised that until you were explaining it to me now. Because okay. I, I don't think I could quite read what it said on the building <laughs> at the end of the movie properly. I think I paused it. Looked. I had to make out best. I think. Oh no. Or, uh, yeah. I couldn't tell what it was, if it was best or something other word. Ball. Is it the next ball or the best? It's the best ball in the country. So Harlem plays the best ball in the country. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I, I enjoyed the film in part because it just reminded me of being a younger guy. I guess. I, I mean, I really loved that 80s New York yeah. uh, kind of s- s- stat fashion and hair. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah. just the, the, I mean, it, it did feel like a 90-minute Grandmaster Flash video. Yes. That had absolutely that, that kind of feel with all the kind of guys sitting on the stoop and like the clothes and the, the attitude and um, you know, even like you know, the colours um, really kind of felt... Um, you know, reminiscent of and yeah. you know, this I, I you know I visited New York with a friend in 1988 I yeah. think so like you know four years after this film was you know and we were kind of two sort of weedy English white guys so yeah. we weren't exactly kind of um, uh, you know getting down with Grandmaster Flash but um, but I still you know quite fondly remember yeah those yeah. haircuts those clothes that kind of that period of New York. History and, and the music too takes you back to that era instantly. Yeah. Even if the music's not necessarily good, it definitely evokes the times. And for me, I, I just thought immediately of um, "Desperately Seeking Susan," film from the eighties ah. with Madonna, um, as well that was, as that, that was probably also nineteen eighty four. It's about that same time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and then the other one was. Um, after Hours, which is one of my favorite uh, Martin Scorsese oh, yeah. films. So I was just immediately brought right back there. And um, John Sales is kind of the godfather of all all those independent filmmakers that come, you know, in the 90s and and after. So, I mean, I think he's just, uh, he's given us a pretty good film there. And it, you know, I think it stands up pretty well. Definitely, I mean, it's very 80s. It's definitely that era. But, um, <laughs> it's a good 80s. Yeah, and, you know, again, sadly, some of the themes of uh, multiculturalism and, and race are still with us today. So um, absolutely, it's definitely I mean, it's, still yeah, it's, relevant. Absolutely, it's kind of it feels embarrassing to watch the film made from 1984 yeah. and, as, as if one would travel back to 1984 and say, "You know, hi, I'm a visitor from the year space year 2022." Oh yeah, we haven't sorted any of this stuff out yet. I'm sorry. In fact, it's a bit worse. Yeah, there, um, <laughs> there are like a bunch of great scenes. It is does feel like a collection of scenes yeah. at times more than a single coherent through line. Yeah. But you know, those uh, individual scenes, many of them, you know, just joyous. I like there's a little scene where he sees a magic trick on the subway. You know, um, oh yeah. And this you know this guy just does like this kind of this really clever little trick with a pack of cards. Yeah. And the brother, you know, has never seen a pack of cards before and doesn't know how to cut a deck or anything. So yeah. um so the guy kind of cuts the deck for him and continues with the, with the trick and it's just just a lovely little slice of life. I was in exactly the same position like about two weeks ago that um i'd uh, been recording a radio show and i got the train back into town with another guy who's also a guest on the show who is like a close-up magician um and uh, uh this guy was uh he, while we were sitting on the train he just got out a pack of cards and started doing tricks oh, wow. for like other people on the train 
Um, and I felt like, well, I just, uh, watching a brother from another planet, I felt like, well, I lived this moment two weeks ago. There's another kind of great scene that I really enjoyed, which is um, in the arcade. Mm-hmm. There's a girl who plays the arcade games and she's complaining that they're not fast enough. Yeah. So like the brother, like he like overclocks the arcade machine yeah. using his kind of his magical hand. Yeah. Um, but the way that it's filmed, it's, um, it's filmed like a sex scene. Because he's he's got his kind of hand on the machine, yeah. and he's kind of speeding it up, but he's kind of keeping eye contact with her. Yeah, and then she um, is playing the games. It gradually gets faster and faster, and she's kind of like really enjoying she it. Is. And then she's twiddling this joystick around, <laughs> you know, which is which is you know no yes. very subtle symbolism, mm, not at all. Um, and it's just like you know the both of their kind of growing pleasure. Um, it's like you know her excitement, and then his 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 kind of pleasure at seeing her excited. Yeah. Um, it's just a really sort of sweet. It's like you know, it's like the three camera setups. You know, really simple kind of couple of close ups. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, clever, witty, really enjoyable, fun little scene. Really clever. I really yeah. like that. Good. And then the kind of the nighttime tour of the drug dens after he kind of he shoots up, and then you get yeah. this little you know slice of life again where the camera just looks at you know at people who've taken drugs and they're kind of just like lying on mattresses in the road or yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of you know shocking, but also you know it's humane and um, you know it's not trying to kind of not really trying to judge even it's or at least it's kind of offering people as victims rather than to be blamed. Yeah, and it's um, you know it's kind of it's nicely filmed. Yes, um, and his yeah his his Jamaican rescuer just goes on and on and on talking about it, sort of uh, commentating on everything they see. Um, it makes it surreal. It's a very surreal scene, mm. um, but yeah, again, very real in New York City at the time. Have you seen a lot of John Sales' pictures? Um, I think I have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not all of them. And he hasn't been active in the last, or so active in the last 10, 20, 10 or 12 years, I'd say. But um, I mean, he's in his 70s now, isn't he? I think. Yeah, I think he's probably in his 70s. Probably, again, if he's doctoring scripts, uh, um, then he might not you know, get credits that would go into IMDb or anything like that. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I saw um, certainly... Uh, uh, was it Lone Star, the Texas film with Chris Cooper, um, Casa de los Babies, uh, City of God, I think it's called. Um, yeah, I've seen a, a number of his yeah. films, yeah. I think the only one I've knowingly seen is Limbo, which is another David Strathairn film. Oh, okay. Um, I think that's the only other John Sales film I've seen. And it's it's a kind of a sweet slice of life film yeah. about a struggling um, community in Alaska. And then it's kind of then it, uh, like this this guy and his brother I think are involved in a drug deal that goes wrong and yeah. um, and then like the guy and his kind of new girlfriend have to go kind of on the run and they escape to this little island off the coast of Alaska yeah. and the very end of the movie um, sees like the the guy and the girlfriend and I think maybe her daughter I think they're stranded on this little island standing on the beach and they can see a plane circling um you know like a seaplane that's about to come into land yeah. and they know that the seaplane is either the police coming to rescue them or it's the drug dealers coming to kill oh, them God. and they don't know who it is in the plane um and then the movie ends and it leaves you there yeah exactly and it leaves you there and um and I can understand that he's probably trying to trying to you know uh, make a film about being unsettled and you know none of us know what the future holds yeah but it did feel like a bit of a cheat i must say when i walked out of the cinema and i thought well, wait a second it's you know did the print break was there's another mm-hmm. 10 minutes to come yeah what happened yeah well um, i think he he's a very earnest filmmaker his values are all over his films i think and you know unlike nope we had to work a little bit i think to to get at the themes i think his themes are always really 
obvious and relevant and he really does hammer them home and you know to a fault maybe there's more in the dialogue that helps him to do that but um i i think his 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 values are clear and his ideas are very clear in his films do you think if john sales tried to make brother from another planet today um he would be accused of kind of cultural tourism or at least people would say you know, you're a white man in your 70s why why are you making a movie about you know the experience of being um, you know, a, a black guy in New York. Yeah. Great point. I think, I know, I think he would get it made. I think it would, it, I mean, this film still works. Um, it does still work. Yeah. And it, yeah. for 1984, I mean, this is a white writer director with a majority black cast. I mean, it's, that's pretty impressive. Um, you know, obviously in this day and age, you'd probably want to see a black filmmaker, a black writer get it done, but you know, at least sales got it done. Um, yeah. He's probably the kind of guy who would say, "Look, uh, you know, I've got this idea, but uh, someone else, someone else should make the film." And I think, you know, that would be another way to, for him to make some a film like this today. But um, it works. It works. I, I don't think there's any cultural appropriation necessarily. And he's he's very. I mean, he's there are Hispanic characters in there. There are like Midwestern white 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 guys in there. I mean, he's touching on. He's intentionally touching on a lot of different um, cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think what, what impressed me was that his dialogue was appropriate for every culture that he was exploring. Mm. Um, I think that for me, that's a really hard thing to write is just really write words that ring authentic in um, in other people's voices, especially people who are just not like me. So I thought uh, I thought that was really well done. That was the thing that impressed me. It's one of those movies where I feel like you get no points for noticing what the theme is, because like you say, yeah. it's it's in every scene, isn't yeah. it? This, this, yeah. notion, this notion of kind of community. Or at least, at least it's like it's the the interplay of community and alienation, yeah, isn't it? Perfectly, and yeah, and, yeah, and kind of forcing one into the other. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, from that point of view, very skillfully written. I think he he's achieved a lot with what still feels like a small budget, you know, yeah. and a you know, and a very unstarry cast. Um, the only kind of criticism I think I would come up with, which is something that I've kind of read about John Sales before, which is that uh, for all his great writing, he doesn't know where to put the camera. Yeah. Yep. And there are there are a few moments in this film where I'm I'm kind of questioning. Yeah, is this the, there's, there's lots of kind of scenes where the camera it's kind of feels like it's only about two feet off the floor and it's looking up at all of the characters. Yeah. And I think it could you not have just splashed out for a slightly bigger tripod? Yeah. It's like why why is the camera so low in every scene? <laughs> The short pod. I can't imagine <laughs> who would sell that or who would buy it. Yeah, I'm, and you know, literally no camera movement, and obviously, no steady cam in 1984. And you know, you set right. up dollies yeah. and tracking shots. It's going to cost you a lot more money. So I, I understood it, but he's not. Yeah, not terribly imaginative. You can move the camera with a cut too. So I mean, and there's very little of that. There are a lot of scenes where he just pops a camera in, and it becomes theatrical because it's just these characters talking. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the same camera angle for a minute or two in some cases. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I wonder whether um, The Brother from Another Planet is a, a film that's begging to get turned into a play, you know. I think this would probably work perfectly well on yeah. stage. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think he comes from a theatre background. I think he sort of graduated uh, from theatre, in, and, and that's in there. I mean, this is definitely uh, stagey at times. Um, and that I think later on, I don't know. Yet, you know, I assume he was his own director of photography on this thing. I think the later films are a little bit more interesting, and as the technology get uh, more available, I think um, there's more camera movement. But this one, and then the Return of the Sakaka Seven, same sort of thing. It feels very much like a bunch of college buddies who know a little bit about filmmaking, um, making a, making a picture together. So two films, mm -hmm. um, 
about 24, uh, 38 years apart. Is that right? Is my maths right? 38 yeah. years apart, yeah, I think. Um, kind of both about you know, science fiction themes, alienation, um, struggles uh, in society. Not a great deal has changed in 38 years. Um, I could easily imagine somebody making the brother from another planet today. And um, given... Um, you know, the technology available, some version of Nope could have been made in 1984. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, once again, <laughs> progress, where are you? Yeah. Nowhere to be found. Well, yeah, I think Nope, in terms of just the ubiquity of cameras and surveillance, would it be, it might be scarier if it was made in 1984 because we, we weren't accustomed to that. We weren't accustomed to being seen all the time. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's the interesting wrinkle there, I think. But uh, but in terms of, I mean, like, as much CGI as there is in Nope, it's not, it doesn't depend on the technology to push the story, I don't think. I think it's much more about just that family getting together, getting back together. We don't know why they were separated before, the brother and sister, but seeing people come back together uh, in order to battle something greater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I think exactly the same thing happens at the end of Brother from Another Planet, isn't it? Because yeah. I guess the brother, you know, not only has he created, you know, a bunch of proxy families for himself, mm -hmm. but he also, you know, finds his compatriots at the end yeah. to kind of defeat the bigger evil. So these films have a lot in common. Yeah, they actually. do. Good pairing. I was glad we saw them. Yeah, I think, yeah, they work as a double bill. Yeah. That's good. Well Pleasant done. surprise. Sometimes it works. Hey. Well done to Real Santa well Club. You guys are great. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of feedback we get on the email all the time, the Twitter all email. the time. Yeah, it's either that and spam. So, <laughs> so this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Um, do email us in and tell us how great we were this episode, yes. and uh, we will see you next time round for another great pairing. Sounds so, great. Uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. See you everyone. next time. Bye. -bye.